What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Ambitious, attractive, and full of potential, five young college students prepared for the new semester. They dreamed of beginning careers and starting families. They had a lifetime of experiences in front of them, but death came without warning in the dark of the night. Brutally ending five promising lives, leaving behind three gruesome crime scenes, the Gainesville Ripper terrorized the University of Florida casting an ominous shadow across the frightened college town. What evil lurked inside him? What demons drove him to kill? What made him a monster of all time? Book that we're featuring this evening is A Monster of All Time, the true story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper, with my special guest, journalist and author and attorney, J.T. Hunter. Welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, J.T. Hunter. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, One of the worst killers in true crime history. Thank you very much, the monster of all time. You bring us right to a scene, and 
I get to describe this. This is in Parchman, Mississippi's Tentury in Mississippi. You take us, uh, the reader, right to 1987. But tell us a little bit about this Parchman, Mississippi prison. You, you talk about when he was transferred there and then he uh, angered a guard there, so he was put in a very bad prison, but a, a really bad place in a very bad prison. Tell us about this Parchman, Mississippi State Penitentiary. Well, Parchman has a uh, notorious reputation for being really hard on the prisoners there. Uh, there's a there's a really long, interesting history in Parchman if you really want to take the time to look into it. Uh, but uh, it, it definitely was not a place that that folks wanted to be sent to to serve their sentences. And and Danny Rowling, when he went there, he had a, he had a really rough time there. He was he was put in a really, um, for what I gather, really older part of the prison there that was in really bad condition. And so he, you know, he had to endure quite a bit while he was there. And it it, it apparently really affected him, you know not just physically and emotionally, but psychologically as well. You talk about that he thought, or at least had said to administration, that he was, because he was a cop's son, former cop's son, that he wanted to be transferred to administrative segregation. So we're talking about placed in a place that's not so desirable for an inmate would be segregation in any prison, correct? Yeah, I mean, being being isolated and, and not having much contact with anyone else is like a, a prison within a prison, from, from my understanding. Now, something right out of it sounds like a fictional movie. You talk about a, a scene that could be or could not be, depends on if, if someone were to believe what this person was saying. And you talk about this Gemini. You describe this prisoner in these horrid conditions and his sanity tested by being in this prison what is Gemini well Gemini is something that Danny Rowling identified as the really the, the cause of the murders he ultimately ended up committing and the way Rowling explained it was Gemini was this sort of um, demonic force that uh, th- that spoke to him while he was serving his, his hard time there in Parchment under these really miserable conditions and that offered him a way out, a way to, way to survive the experience. And this is something that he apparently believed occurred and ultimately ended up acting on. You say that Gemini gave him the ability to embrace the assurance of vengeance and pledging revenge for the countless injuries he had inflicted upon him. And a new sense of purpose had washed over him with this. You then take the reader to August 26, 1990, Gainesville, Florida, and a couple students, Christina Powell. Uh, first, we talk about Christina Powell. She's 17 years old, and she has moved from Jacksonville to go to the University of Florida in Gainesville. 
the classes weren't start. Uh, she leaves before the weekend. So tell us, she has a relationship with close relationship with her parents. Tell us what happens on that weekend on August 1990 in Gainesville. Well, this is the weekend before classes were scheduled to start there at the University of Florida. And Christina was a, a freshman. She was an incoming freshman there at the college. And she had moved into a new apartment there in Gainesville, uh, along with her new roommate, another freshman at, at the college there. And they were, you know, doing what any college kids do when they're getting ready to start their semester. They were, you know, they were trying to get their stuff moved in. They were, you know, looking around, trying to find some sort of part-time job to work during school and, and getting supplies for the upcoming semester, all these sorts of things. And uh, she was there for the weekend, and normally I guess she called home quite often to talk to her parents, and her parents didn't hear from her for several days. And they really got worried about it and um, ultimately ended up driving over to Gainesville to, to see what was going on, to see why they hadn't heard from their daughter. Now you you talk about right at the apartment that they had to break in. There was a locked deadbolt, and as soon as they they broke in, basically they could smell death, as you as you write. Uh, and they found Sanja Larson. She was 18 years old. Her Christina's uh, roommate. Uh, they find her first. What is the? I know this is graphic, but what's the condition of Sonya? What? How do they find her, and uh, what's the condition? Well, the the body was already starting to show signs of decomposition, um, and uh, there were, you know, readily apparent that she had been stabbed to death. There were stab wounds visible on her. Um, her, her shirt was pinned down. There were there were stab wounds that could be seen on her arm, on her leg and chest area. <clears throat> and you know, you can imagine the the bloody condition of the body. Yeah, uh, that, that was there. There was, there was quite a bit of blood found all around there. Now you talk about too that uh, the, the, there was also a large piece of flesh was cut from her upper thigh. And then another scene, they'd come in, the perpetrator had come in through the upstairs, so there was a, you say, a second scene, ghastly scene, was downstairs, and it was a nude body of, of Christina Powell. Um, what is one of the things, again, very unusual, that, that, that they encountered when they saw the scene, Christina Powell? Well, like like Sonia Larson, she had been stabbed to death, uh, multiple stab wounds to her. Um, but uh, you know, like similar to what you mentioned about the the, the flesh being cut from um, Sonia's leg, uh, with Christina, her both of her nipples had been cut off. Yeah. And her body had been arranged a certain way, you know, in, in, indicating that the whoever had murdered her had had you know staged her body in a particular way kind of band her hair out um, to the side of her head and, and placed her in a, a certain position there. There was other unusual things. Like you say, there was, uh, he obscenely posed uh, her with her legs spread, but also there was some effort to be able to clean up the scene with uh, dish soap. 
and also that um, that he bound these women with duct tape, and that he had taken the duct tape away after he left. This this murder scene does what in this little college town on the very beginning of the college year? Well, it certainly it certainly freaked everybody out. I guess would be the way to kind of sum it up. Uh, made everyone very much um, very much wary, very much concerned. Nobody had any idea you know, who this killer was that had that had killed these two young girls inside their own apartment. So there was a lot of fear in, in Gainesville. Um, nobody knew who had done it. It could have been anybody. It could have been, you know, someone's neighbor. And so how do police proceed in terms of trying to to deal with this uh, looks like someone, a killer on the loose, a mad killer on the loose? Well, you know, they, they started organizing uh, the best they could, investigating the, the murders, but uh, before they could really even get going too far with their investigation of, of these murders, they, they found a, another body. So, um, you know, right on right on the heels of whatever these another body showed up. Now, you talk about this uh, third victim. This is Krista Hoyt, and very interestingly, uh, she was working also part-time as a clerk in the Records Bureau of uh, Alachua County Sheriff's Office, and uh, she failed to show up for a midnight work shift, and so co-workers sent a deputy to check on her, and that's how she was discovered. Again, the locked apartment, and when he looked inside, what did he find at Krista Hoyt's crime scene? Well, Krista's crime scene was really, I mean, all, all these scenes were pretty gruesome, but, but Krista's mm-hmm. was was the most gruesome um that what had been done to her her body um you know she had been she had been killed similarly to to the other two victims but her um she had also been decapitated and um her head had been placed on a, a bookshelf next to the bed where her body was positioned uh, her body had been propped up on the edge of the bed as if it was sitting there and her head was put on the bookcase, beside it, um, positioned as if looking at the at the body. So the head the head was you know facing the body as if Krista was looking at her her own decapitated body there. Obviously meant to evoke horror on whoever happened to find her. You also talk about the police afterwards. Again, they were they were looking for. <clears throat> some sort of witness, and the, her landlord told police that on August 25th, he had noticed the gate latch had been unlocked. And so he just mentioned that to her, and she thought, well, maybe it was maybe uh, a television repairman or something in the area, and he hadn't thought much of it. But in retrospect, he told police that what he had noticed with the latch. Um, now, this is the third victim in Gainesville in two days. You talk about uh, Gainesville Police Chief Waylon Clifton. He calls uh, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for help. He knows he's over his head by a long shot with this, doesn't he? Yeah, the, 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 it's too much for a coincidence to have 
the two girls' bodies found one day, and then the very next day to find this other body, um, you know, killed in, in a similar fashion. So, so all the signs were pointing to the same killer having done this. And so, yeah, so Gainesville wasn't a place that had a, experience with a lot of murders, and to have this many happen all at once, yeah, certainly he, he decided he needed to call in some some outside help. You talk, too, that uh, in this general area, but at least Florida for sure and, and close by, that another infamous serial killer had terrorized College Town a decade before. Who was that? That, would be, that was Ted Bundy, a uh, very well-known serial killer who, who, who killed, um, you know, he, he killed in different states, but in, in Florida and in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, he was notorious for having attacked and killed a number of state university students up there and uh, was ultimately caught not long afterward, uh, I believe around the Jacksonville area. But, um, but yeah, so Ted, Ted Bundy was, was certainly a notorious um, killer. And then, you know, Rowling ends up having a sort of a similar uh, way of going about doing things, you know, instead of instead of killing college students in Tallahassee at Florida State, he's killing college students in Gainesville, at the University of Florida. Yeah. Let's get back to more murder. Unfortunately, August twenty eighth, nineteen ninety, two more bodies are found. This time, one was a male, uh, Manuel Taboda, a twenty three year old. And Tracy Pauls is 23 years old, too, and they're roommates. Uh, and this is about a mile from Krista Hoyt's home, so in the general area. And they're stabbed to death, but tell us what uh, a little bit about the background, why Tracy moved in with Manuel, a little bit about the background about these two people um, before we talk a little bit more about the crime scene itself, another ghastly affair. Well, Tracy and, and, and Manny Sabota, they were friends from back in high school. Uh, they went to high school down in South Florida, and they, they became friends there um, near Miami. And they were they were a little bit older than the other victims. They were both 23, I believe, um, whereas the other victims were, were freshmen around 18, 19 years old. So they were a couple of years older. They had known each other since high school, and uh, they were really good friends. And um, as you as you indicated, Tracy had been, you know, a little concerned about her safety. Um, so she decided it would be a good idea to be roommates with with Manny because, well, for one, Manny was was a male, obviously, but he's also a very large male. Um, he played high school and football. Uh, he was. Uh, six foot two, um, two hundred pounds. So he was a he was a big you know big guy, and uh, you know she you know reasonably enough figured that if she roomed with him that she'd be pretty safe. You also talk about that it, it's fascinating that since these murders are fresh and they're in, on people's minds and they've created such a, a panic among these college students, some of these college students have changed their mind. Their parents have said, come on back home. It's not worth it. But it, it was interesting that the father even implored her daughter to hang around Manny, stay by Manny, be careful. 
Um, and they talked about the murders. They did talk about keeping her safe. They had joked about it. They had mentioned it. They had spoke about it. They had cautioned her. Then you talk about Manny getting home from bartending at about 1.45 a.m. Tell us what he does when he gets home and what she's doing, and tell us what happens shortly after at 3 a.m. Yeah, that's one of the, you know, one of the scary things about the case is that, you know, Tracy's on the phone talking to her, her family and talking to her friend, her good friend, and, you know, they're all worried about the fact that these other bodies have been discovered there, and they're, they're cautioning her, warning her to be careful. <clears throat> and, you know, as it turns out, well, it, it, when she's on the phone having this conversation, the killer's outside watching her on the phone the whole time. Um, so, as you said, Manny uh, had a job bartending, uh, I think at a Bennington's there in Gainesville. He came home early in the morning, 1.30-ish, and uh, came into the apartment and checked on, went in and checked on Tracy after he got in and basically told her, hey, I'm home, I'm, really, I'm beat, I'm tired, I'm, I'm going to bed, and, uh, and then went to bed. Now, you say that someone, uh, obviously Danny Rowling, was, was watching, and you get this information with the incredible access that you have to information afterwards. What does Danny Rowling do? How does he, again, do you imagine a, a, a couple people aware that there's a threat, and this guy that's an offensive guard in football, he's six foot, 200 pounds, how does Danny Rowling do what he does? Well, once he gains access to the apartment, he, he enters in there and goes to to Manny's bedroom first. And, you know, he waits a while before before he enters the apartment to give him time to be sound asleep. And then once he enters, he goes into Manny's apartment and um, stands over him and takes out his knife. He has one of these, <clears throat> these large... Uh, marine fighting knives are called kabar knives and he takes one takes that out and, and while Manny's sleeping on his back he plunges it straight down into into Manny's chest and from there Manny wakes up uh abruptly obviously and gasps and there's a there's a there's a there's a struggle there for uh it was described as a really bloody um, rough struggle that went on as, as Manny fought for his life, but um, ultimately he was overcome. Uh, you know, obviously caught caught by surprise while he was sound asleep, and uh, he was he was stabbed to death. Uh, very another very very bloody crime scene. And then um, while that was happening, Tracy, who had gone to bed as well, heard the commotion and. Um, peered out her door down the hall and saw the killer come out of Manny's room. And, uh, you know, she screamed and closed her door, locked the door and tried to get away. But uh, he, he pursued down the hall and kicked in her door and attacked her. Now, you say that it's very interesting, too, that uh, Tracy's friend Lisa the next day couldn't reach her. And so she calls uh, another friend called Tommy Carroll, and that's how Tom, they, their bodies were discovered at the Gator, Gator Woods apartment. Neither body had been mutilated, but 
another fascinating part of this was that when he had gone there, there was a black bag, and he ran to obviously alert police. What was the incredible, strange thing that was seen by police after he mentioned this bag? What? Tell us about the the bag. Yeah, this is an interesting. Uh fact too is this this bag that was mentioned i believe it was uh the the gatorwood apartment maintenance guy or or you know maintenance caretaker there at the apartment complex was the one that Mm -hmm. um you know opened the door and when, when he opened up the door he saw the the bag was there laying there on the floor beside a body um, this black bag that you mentioned, and the the door was actually, um, I believe it was unlocked when he did that. And so when he opened it, he, he saw the body in the bag there. And the the bag, they, they closed the door back after that because you know, the, obviously they they saw this body there, so they kind of shocked and they closed the door back and went to notify the police. And when the police did show up and go back into the apartment, the bag was gone. Now, what did that, well, we'll we'll just, I don't know, jump ahead, but what did that indicate to police that, compared to the other crime scenes, what had happened with this bag? What did that indicate was different from those other crime scenes? It indicated that the killer was still inside the apartment when um, these individuals went there to to check on Tracy and Manny there. The, The killer was still inside, and... Uh, was was interrupted in whatever he was wanting to do at the time. The, the other uh, the other difference there, you know, there was this this black bag that was apparently seen. But the other difference was that the um, bodies there weren't you know displayed in any sort of manner uh, like the like the other bodies had been at the other crime scenes. So another indication that the killer had been interrupted and had to flee the scene before he had wanted to. You talk about, too, that the headlines in the newspapers now are Lust, Killer, Toll, Now Five. And you're talking about headlines, and they also talk about in the articles, hundreds leave the school, change their mind, like I say, parents say, get out of there. Now, this is uh, five dead in three days. You also chronicle in the book, too, that the residents in this panic bought out the city supply deadbolts, stun guns, mace, shotguns, rifles, baseball bats. And this definitely, definitely, absolutely changed everyone's attitude and behavior in this community, didn't it? Yeah, it was it was the proverbial mass panic. Um, and everyone, as you said, they, they cleaned out the, the local supply stores of all these sort of, you know, defensive weapons and um, shotguns, baseball bats all these sorts of things, stun guns. And uh, there, was a, there was a mass exodus of, of students, um, hundreds, thousands of students left uh, at the University of Florida uh, at, at the behest of their parents, their worried parents, and, uh, you know, out of, out of their own fear for their own safety as well. Yes, absolutely. Let's uh, use this as an opportunity, JT, to talk uh, for a second about our sponsor, which is Audible. What would it look like if we all listened more? Listening to audiobooks motivates us, inspires us, even brings us closer together. 
there's no better place to listen than Audible, because now Audible members can get even more. Exclusive Audible audio fitness programs, audiobooks, Audible originals, and more. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and now, with Audible originals, the selection has got even more, custom with content made for members. A great audiobook to listen to is Deadly Deception by J.T. Hunter, our guest tonight. Deadly Deception, the murders of Tampa serial killer Bobby Joe Long, the Florida Forensic Files Book 2. One after another, young women disappeared without a trace in the night. One by one, their brutalized bodies turned up, the macabre crime scenes suggesting they shared the same cruel fate. Abducted, bound, and raped, all fell prey to an unknown killer. All became victims of a deadly deception. Deadly Deceptions, narrated by Don Klein, experience J.T. Hunter's Deadly Deception on Audible Audiobook. It is an incredible listening experience. Every month, Audible members get one credit good for any listening, any audiobook they choose, plus two Audible originals from a changing selection that they can't get anywhere else. They also get access to audio fitness and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Didn't like your audiobook? Exchange it. No questions asked. Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash truemurder or text truemurder to 500-500. That's audible.com slash true murder or text true murder to 500500. You can do it with Audible audiobooks. Now, JT, we talked about the panic that was ensuing in Gainesville. How do police approach this and at the same time? Where is Danny ruling? Well, in response to these multiple murders, and obviously they seem to be the the work of the, the same killer, and there seems to be a serial killer on the loose there in Gainesville. <clears throat> the the Gainesville police there they they combine forces. Um, they have the uh, the sheriff's office there, uh, Lucia County Sheriff's Office. They have the city of Gainesville police. Um, and they also have the University, University of Florida police there, and um, they also brought in uh, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. <clears throat> so they combined forces with all these agencies to, to form a task force um, to investigate these these five murders of these five Gainesville students. You also say they even bring in profilers, and again, the famous uh, John Douglas and another one came named Jim Wright, um, they are very t- taken very seriously. These profiles emerged from this comes a suspect, and when John Douglas looks at them and Jim Wright, they think that this is a real good suspect based on some of the circumstances and some of the background of this perpetrator. What happens with this Edward Humphrey, a 19-year-old part-time student at the University of Florida? How does he become a prime suspect? 
Well, during the investigation, uh, the police had been interviewing residents at the different apartment complexes where the where the murders took place, and uh, as part of that, they spoke to some some students there at Florida who told the police about a former roommate that they had, and they described this roommate as uh, acting very strangely and um, as having. Um, you know, voiced uh, things against females, like his ex-girlfriend and things like this. And um, also apparently he had had some sort of fixation on um, one of the victims, um, on uh, Tracy Pauls. And um, he had lived at at the Gatorwood Apartments for some time. So when the police learned this, this, this person shot up on the, list of of, of suspects and became their top suspect. And, you know, you mentioned his name, Ed Humphrey. Uh, He was a 19-year-old part-time student there at the University of Florida. He was was a big guy, um, over six feet tall and over 200 pounds. And he had, uh, you know, in in, in researching him, they they found out that he had had a number of encounters with various police um, over over the years and, and recently as well. And they also discovered that he had a, a history of uh, manic depression and, and, and a lot of uh, strange behavior in the past. So he was certainly someone they were they were focused in on. They, they really thought he was going to be the guy that um, that had done it. Right. Now you take us in the book, though. At the same time, we're juxtaposing back and forth from Danny Rowling's Danny Rowling's past. And you talk about the, I guess, the progression and evolution of this guy as a criminal and then as a killer, or a rapist and a killer. Uh, tell us about some of the background, what happens to him. They, there is, of course, when we get later in all kinds, in the mitigating portion of the sentencing, there's all kinds of stories come out about things that could be indicative of something uh, attributed to this killing spree later on. But tell us a little bit about Danny Rowling and his background that you chronicle in the book. Yeah, it, the, the the way the narrative is, is presented, as you said, it, it, it goes back and forth. The, the chapters alternate um, between, between, between the, the prisoner who we meet at the very beginning of the book in Parchment Prison, who, as it turns out later, is Danny Rowling. Um, and so we, we follow this, this prisoner, um, how he ends up in Parchment Prison, and then what happens after he gets out of Parchment Prison. And then we follow that thread um, all the way up through into the murders in Gainesville and then move forward from there. So um, the, he, Danny Rowling had a... Had a had a rough past. Um, we talked about his time in Parchment Prison, and you know, obviously, he did things to, to merit being there. Um, sure. And as you said, he he did have this this uh, you know escalating um, background of, of of crimes that he occurred, and it, it all traced back to his his family life. Um, he had a he had a very domineering father figure, a very a very rough figure, and according to, to Danny Rowling, 
Uh, his father was abusive, um, not just to Danny, but to his brother and to his mother as well. And there were a lot of incidences between father and, and son in the past, and a lot of, um, you know, degrading, um, humiliating, and, and, you know, physically violent incidents between father and, and, and Danny Rowling. And those are all... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Detailed in the book. Uh, and, this, you know, this leads to a really violent confrontation with his father when he gets older, um, resulting in him having a, a gunfight with his father. Uh, and, and he ends up shooting his father uh, in their home. And, um, you know, and also, you know, in the in the the time periods leading up to that as well, Danny Rowling, as a, as a teenager, he, he starts this lifelong habit of peeping in windows. He's introduced right. to this apparently by a, a friend of his there when he's a teenager, peering in the window of a of a neighbor's house where the, the daughter is a cheerleader of, you know, the local high school and, you know, seeing her undressing and things. And so this is something that Daniel Rowling becomes essentially addicted to for the rest of his life and something he, he does, you know, thereafter. And, and this, this peeping in windows eventually graduates into breaking into homes. And, you know, of course there's some, robbery, some theft involved in that, but also uh, it escalates into um, rapes and, and, you know, violent encounters with women in these places. He, he would, you know, kind of spy on these women and then break into their houses and rape them. And um, this escalated as well. And, you know, eventually, uh, as we see, it would be ultimately the result of it is the, the murders in Gainesville. And, you know, as it turns out, there was uh, another murder scene um, before the Gainesville ones as well. Let's talk about the Grissoms. Um, youngest was uh, Sean. That's uh, Tom and uh, geez, there's three. Julie, I believe. Tell us about the three Grissoms and the crime scene that police found there. Yeah, so the Grissoms, um, Tom was the, 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 the father, 50, he was 55. Sean was the, the boy, he was eight, and Julie was 24. Um, she was the daughter. So um, the three of them uh, were found murdered at Tom Grissom's home where, uh, where Julie was living with her father there, and then Sean was there for the weekend staying with them. And the three of them were found murdered in, um, in 1989 in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, and it was a, another violent murder scene, uh, stabbings. All three of them had been stabbed to death. And Julie had been, you know, there were signs that Julie had been um, raped as well as being murdered. And, you know, like these, like several of the scenes in Gainesville, 
Um, Julie's body had been left a certain way. You know, the killer had had staged her body a certain way, um, and, uh, and it was just another another really sad, um, violent murder site. And you know, it, it turned out that um, Rowling had been fired from a job the very day of the murders, the same day that the family was murdered, Rowling really had been fired from a, a job at a restaurant there in, in Shreveport. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how far you want me to jump ahead, but, it, it, you know, it turns out after looking into it, too, that Rowling, Danny Rowling had been, you know, he ran at the same park that Julie ran at and, you know, would have could have bumped into her at various locations, um, you know, right. prior to this and he was and things. And so, you know, it wasn't, wasn't just a pure random sort of killing. He had obviously had contact with Julie and targeted her. Now let's jump ahead to, well, we have the funerals. You, you chronicle the funerals for the five people. And you say early that morning, police had spotted a man in camouflage pants near the third crime scene, and yet he got away. And they they sent police dogs, helicopters. They couldn't find him. Yet at the same time that they had that incident, very, again, movie-esque, you say the police are announcing that they're very close to an arrest. Very close to an arrest of who? Well, they still had their sights set on uh, Ed Humphrey. You know, they were convinced right. this guy was their guy. Um, and, uh, you know, they also there was also another name that came up as um, someone that they were looking at as well um, who had a, had, a, had, a, had his own violent history and apparently had attacked a woman with a knife or something. So, they uh, they definitely had these these suspects that were high up on the list, you know, chief of which was was Ed Humphrey. You talk about July 1990. He goes to Tallahassee. Danny Rowland goes to Tallahassee again, the the place where Ted Bundy perpetrated his crimes. But he's using an alias called Michael Kennedy Jr. He checks into a travel lodge with this stolen idea ID, pardon me, and uh, Tell us about this recording he makes to his family in Sarasota, and then uh, tell us about the content of that recording. What's in that? And then where does he go August 23rd? Yeah, so Rowling arrived in Tallahassee in, in mid-June, and uh, you know, coincidentally this is where he, he, he purchases the murder weapon, the, the Smarine Kabar knife, and um, from there, he goes to Sarasota, the Sarasota area, and this is where, while he's there, um, staying at a at a motel, there is where he's, he begins this tape that you mentioned. Um, you know, it's just one of these old tape recorders, audio tape recorders, and it's yeah. it's a message to his family, and uh, he's just you know kind of um, letting them know his his thoughts, you know, kind of reflecting back on you know, the bad relationship they've had, um, father and son and, um, thoughts about his mother and things like this. And then it, it, he ends up continuing this tape recording after he gets to Gainesville. Um, he, he, he arrives in Gainesville in 
mid-August, around the 18th, I believe it was, uh, arrives by Greyhound in Gainesville. And first he checks into a, a hotel again, and, but after about about a week or so, he checks out of that hotel and ends up setting up a, a camp in a wooded area there in Gainesville, um, sets up a, a tent in a wooded area there. And the night he does that is when he continues this tape recording to his family. And there's a lot of ominous statements in the tape recording um, to his to his family, and um, especially the end of it. Um, he mentions that he has he has something he has to do, and he has to sign off because he has something he has, he has to do. And that's when the tape stops, and you know, turns out that from there is when he started the the first events that led to the first murder there in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. You say too on the tape, there's a whole lot of singing going on too. He writes his own songs, and so he's singing quite a few songs on the tape as well. Um, you write in the book, again, this is eerie, we mentioned that Gemini, right in the opening of this and right in the opening of your book, we talk about the Gemini, the demon, the the voice that he was, embodied him, I guess. And But interestingly enough, I'm a fan of this movie, like a lot of people, Exorcist Three. You say that in this in this campground that he has, he... He, that he's staying at just previous to this incredible murder spree, he goes to the theater to see Exorcist 3. Exorcist 3, as you write, the movie features a decapitation and a killer possessed by a demon. What's that demon's name in that movie, and what is Rowling's astrological sign? Gemini is the, the demon's name, and that's also rolling sign so um, you know coincidence or was he influenced by the film to make up this Gemini story um, you know that's that's the the question that lingers out there but he you know he, he he obviously he insists that it was just pure coincidence that he was at the theater there and saw this film that, and that Gemini was the name there um, of this this demon um, but uh you know, getting back to that, that opening of the book and this this encounter with this Gemini demonic um, force there, uh, there certainly seems to be some sort of connection there. You talk about, too, that he, he has a gun. We mentioned that. Um, he talks about later that night. You write about that later that night. He was caught by a security guard peeping into another window. But he gets away. Um, August 27th, he robs a bank with a gun. And he tells, again, you capture this, and he says, there better not be any die packs. And, of course, there's die packs and they explode. But the more interesting thing is that uh, a police officer sees two men walk into the woods, one white man, one black man. I guess thinks it's kind of odd, and he calls for backup. And what do they find at this campsite, even though, again, Danny Rowling is able to escape. What do they find at this campsite? Yeah, so this is August 27th, and it's the same date that Krista Hoyt's body is discovered uh, is when the uh, uh, Rowling 
robs this bank there in Gainesville. It's the first union bank, and he uses a gun as part of the robbery, as you said, and, and the exploding ink in the in the bag of money as he's running away. You know, the, the ink explodes. And then the next, uh, the next day there is when the police – uh, who are you know investigating the, the or aware of the robbery, the bank robbery in the area, and when they come upon this these two men, um, this white male and this black male, that you know they to them you know stop basically, and the the black male stops, but the white male takes off running, and he runs into the the woods, this wooded area nearby, and um, the police chase him into there, and uh, they end up coming across the, the campsite there, Rowling's campsite. And there at the campsite, they find quite a few things. They find the the, um, the bag of money, um, you know, the ink-stained money. They find a, a ski mask uh, used in the robbery, and they, they find a gun as well, uh, among some other things. And um, this is also where they find the, the tape recording, actually, also. They find the tape recorder with the tape there, um, but they don't... Um, they don't ever listen to it apparently until quite quite some time later. Now the thing is, he's he's an elusive guy, and he has a lot of luck. Later, he attributes that to again to the demon. But where does he go next? Because uh, again, police are still not on his trail, are they? Fully? No, they uh, they're still. They're still after Ed Humphrey, who, you know, has since been arrested in Brevard County in Florida for assaulting his grandmother. And, and so he's in custody and, and facing charges for that. Um, but they still, you know, they still like him for the, the, the murders of the five students. So Rowling's not even on their radar uh, at this point. Uh, they don't have any idea that, that Rowling, this guy Rowling, could potentially be the one that, that committed the murders. So they're still after Humphrey. Um, they still think he's their guy. And meanwhile, Rowling is, uh, you know, from Gainesville. He robs this bank, and then he goes from Gainesville, he goes to Tampa, uh, commits some home invasions there, stealing things, robs a grocery store there, um, and some other things, steals a car while he's there, and then uh, ends up in um, Ocala, Florida, and robs a Winn-Dixie grocery store there in Ocala, and just so happens that when when he does that, that uh, there's police uh, nearby there, and you know they're able to respond pretty quickly. And so a, a chase ensues, a car chase ensues until he crashes his car. Um, again, kind of kind of movie, like a movie scene, like you mentioned before. Um, you know, they have this car chase, and, and he crashes the car, and then bleeds um, the foot, but is then um, then arrested. Um, but again, so they they take him into custody. They arrest him for the the robbery. Again, having no idea that he's you know connected to these murders that are you know so uh, so dominating the the efforts of the police in, in Gainesville. And then yet, this is another incredible part of this story is that Humphreys now is just destroyed in the media. When investigators leak information and the media runs with the allegations and uh, he's destroyed. Meanwhile, you say that they contact Ann Rule and her incredible experience with Ted Bundy and being this premier true crime writer and investigator, former former police officer. 
She was asked whether Humphreys was their man. What did she say? Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what she said. I don't recall exactly. Um, might have to help me out there a little bit, but she didn't um, think she didn't think he fit it. She said that he wasn't sophisticated enough. Um, she said that definitely that the case resembled Bundy was addicted to murder, but she said he was too young, and she didn't think so. Not sophisticated enough, because yeah, I, I guess, I guess yeah, she. Um, comment too as well because it, it's it's an observation or a conclusion that some other folks that looked at the case thought too that it just didn't seem like Humphrey you know had the the ability to pull these kind of crimes off um, and be able to get away with it like this killer had um, you know even though the even though the crime scenes were very bloody uh, you know and messy in that sort of way they were also very clean in another sort of way in that there wasn't any real evidence left behind for, you know, investigators to, to make a case with. So, you know, the, these, these people, like you mentioned Ann Rule and then some of these other outside folks that, that looked at it, um, you know, didn't think that, that Humphrey would be able to, to do this sort of thing because he was so disorganized uh, as an individual, um, you know, due to his you know, it's a history of, of mental illness, among other things. So, so yeah, it was an interesting observation. You put in, you write in September 1990, Roland pleads guilty to armed robbery at the Winn-Dixie. And uh, he, he he pleads for leniency, but he gets a life sentence with the habitual felony offender. As a, So while in custody, he makes statements about the Gainesville killer. And things like they'll never catch him. And then you also write on January, well, January, February, ninety-one. Tip from Shreveport resident Cindy Dobbin, who had met him, she said, fifteen years earlier at the United Pentecostal Church. What did she tell them? And and what did she tell them? And then regarding the Grissom murders and her experience with this man fifteen years earlier. Well, she she called in to suggest that they take a hard look at, at Danny Rowling as as a suspect in the murders, um, based on her past experiences with him. And um, you know, at the time, I, I don't believe that they gave it the priority that um, you know ultimately it it, it merited, um, unfortunately. So how is it they come to take a look at Danny Rowling? Because you write masterfully that, that basically the, the police, no matter what, even when they find a connection with the Grissom murders, with the other five murders, that they'd still think Humphrey's involved somehow. Tell us how this progresses to the point where finally Danny Rowling is identified. Well, there's ultimately there's some communications um, between the Shreveport police and the Gainesville uh, investigators there. And um, some of the detectives from Gainesville go up to Shreveport to, to, you know, talk to the investigators there, you know, 
read the case file and kind of see the similarities in the crimes. And there's certainly some some real similarities there that raise some red flags that uh, these are potentially committed by the same guy. And, um, you know, meantime, Danny Rowling's in, in jail um, from the robbery um, sentence. <clears throat> and so the, the, the Gainesville police start considering him as a, as a possible suspect as well. And they're able to get DNA samples from him. Um, he gets a tooth taken out while he's there in, in jail. And they're able to get a hold of the, you know, the, the bloody gauze and stuff that's left over from that procedure and uh, use it mm-hmm. to, to test his DNA. And um, ultimately that DNA comes back as a match uh, for, uh, I, I believe it was the, the Sonia Larson. Uh, no, I think it was maybe it was the Crystal Hoyt. Um, ended up matching one, one of the bodies that ended up matching mm-hmm. um, the crime scene there. So they, they certainly had strong evidence pointing at rolling by that point. Now, it's very interesting, too, because this story, I mean, we're not going to have enough time to go into this because it's such an involved, wild story. Once they have him in custody, um, there emerges a, a, an inmate. Again, it's Amer- amazing about American uh, justice is how many people want to come forward once they're in prison and turn informant. There's a Robert Bobby Lewis, uh, former death row. Now his, he's doing a life sentence. And Sandra London. Uh, just tell us about Sandra London and Bobby Lewis and what these two people were thinking of doing and planning to do. Well, yeah, Bobby Lewis, as you said, he was, a, he was an inmate there. Um, and um, he he heard about Danny Rowling, and you know he ended up working the same floor area in the prison where Danny was being held. And so he he went out of his way to introduce himself and meet Danny Rowling and struck up a friendship with him. Uh, Danny was apparently impressed that, that Bobby Lewis had at one time escaped from death row. Um, walked out of the prison in broad daylight by impersonating a, one of the guards there, essentially. And so that really impressed Danny. And so they struck up this friendship, and Danny started revealing details about some of the crimes that had been committed to Bobby Lewis. <clears throat> and so Bobby Lewis reached out to Sondra London, who he, he knew from before because she was a true crime writer, and um, she had you know, been working on some some books with some of the inmates there, including Bobby Lewis. And so he reached out to her and started telling her about his contact with Danny Rowling. And that eventually led to Bobby Lewis talking to investigators about the crimes. And, um, you know, kind of the, 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 one of the odd things about it is Danny Rowling seems to know the whole time that Bobby Lewis is sharing this information, but keeps giving him the information anyway, and then ultimately uses Bobby as his mouthpiece to confess to the killings, the Gainesville killings. The controversy is, though, that uh, Sandra London becomes involved uh, much more than would say a typical journalist would get involved in writing a story. Tell us what the controversy is regarding her. Yeah, Sandra becomes romantically involved with Danny, and um, she starts. She agrees 
to work with him on writing his story. And so, you know, they're going to, they're going to write the story about Danny Rowling and the murders and everything and, you know, make money off of this. And, you know, meanwhile, Danny also, uh, he's also kind of a, this artist and he, he makes these sketches and drawings and things in addition to being a songwriter. Uh, and so he's sending her these things as well. And she's, you know, selling these artworks to people who like to collect those sort of things and uh, making money off of that. And she enters into these book deals and interview deals with these different media uh, outlets and things. And uh, was making money off of this as well to, to be like the ex- exclusive source of Danny Rowling's story. So as you said, it starts, it, it, it's a big controversy, you know, and the fact that, you know, she's trying to profit off these crimes. He's trying to profit basically off these crimes. And, and so it, it's a whole nother um, thread of the story, really. We t- He goes to trial. Obviously, this is a death penalty case, and that's why we have this. We can say right now it takes 16 years to get to uh, – for Jeb Bush to sign an, an order for the death warrant 16 years later. Um, and we we could talk about the trial as well. Just when he goes to trial, you know, what I thought was incredible and you write in a book is that when we got to that sentencing, the, the forces that want this person put to death and then, of course, the forces that don't believe in the death penalty at all, I found it, uh, again, even more over the top than normal, considering the crime scene photos that the jurors would have to see, and yet everybody in that, including the jurors, got to see the blown-up photos of the crime scenes, blocked out for the more gruesome parts, but just I couldn't imagine the family and everyone having to endure those kinds of photos just to be able to try to put this person to death, which took forever. Yeah, it was a, it was a lengthy process, as these death penalty cases tend to be. You know, the the interesting thing in the case here is that you know the the day of jury selection, you know the the prosecution and defense were all geared up, building their case up over you know months and months and months and getting ready for what they anticipated would be a long trial uh, to determine guilt. But on the, the first day of trial there of jury selection, the first day of jury selection, Danny informed the judge he wanted to plead guilty. And, you know, it, it stunned everybody except for, for the judge and the state attorney who had learned this, you know, several days before. Um, but everyone else in the courtroom was stunned because they all expected this long, involved, grueling trial. But, but Danny ended up pleading guilty to it in kind of this dramatic sort of fashion. And, you know, his statement is in the book about why he does that and everything as well. But um, so from there, they, they, the guilt has been established. So the rest of the trial is just devoted to, um, you know, whether the death penalty should be imposed. <clears throat> and, and ultimately it is uh, after, you know, testimony from a lot of psychological experts um, about, why Danny did what he did and his capacity to understand it and all these sorts of things. And that's all detailed as well in the book. Um, But he does end up ultimately receiving the death penalty. Um, And, uh, as you said, years and years, years, years later, uh, the 
the sentence is finally carried out, the, the death warrant is signed by the governor, um, who was Jeb Bush I guess, at the time, and, uh, and the, the sentencing date uh, or the execution date um, is, was scheduled. There was talk of people being suspicious of the plea, the guilty plea at the last minute. Um, what was some people's idea, the motivation for him doing that? Well, he claimed that it was to spare the families of the victims from having to endure hearing the testimony, seeing the photos of their loved ones and all these kind of things. But, um, you know, other people think that he was doing it uh, out of um, completely out of self-interest. Uh, he wanted to try to avoid the death penalty. And that's the whole reason why he went ahead and pled guilty was to try to avoid getting a death sentence. In this, it was interesting, too, when you have these death penalty cases that there really does come out, at least whether it's part fiction or completely true, there is the background from the mothers and the fathers and the brothers that come and try to say things to to war off, to avoid basically the death penalty, even though it seems hopeless. What were the kinds of things that they said? I found it very, very fascinating that that it came out that uh, an incident that James, his father, had witnessed when he was a child. Tell us about that uh, incident that came out basically at this uh, the penalty phase of this trial. Well, there was a lot of family history in the Rowling family there of, of mental illness, and uh, Danny's father... James, he, he had his own mental illness issues, and when he was younger, he had witnessed his um, grandmother, um, I believe it was his grandmother that killed his grandfather, if I, have, if I recall correctly, um, um, at, the, at the kitchen table. Um, yeah. So uh, this is something that, that James had, had witnessed when he was younger, and so this had obviously impacted James uh, and, and it's something that, that got passed along, you know, in, you know, he kind of, he was the, the, the father visiting the, the sins of his father, so to speak on, on Danny rolling eventually as well. So, so the family had, had this history of mental illness. Other members of the family had these sort of mental issues as well. Um, so that all came out during the trial. And one of the really interesting things also I thought was, um, Danny's Danny Rowling's explanation as to you know ultimately why he had stopped killing when he did, um, you know he killed the, the five in Gainesville and then stopped. Um, you know right. he, he could have kept going because nobody had any idea who he was at the time. But he stopped, mm-hmm. and the explanation he gave for this later was that he had, you know, in this kind of demonic sort of contract he had entered into with this Gemini force yeah. that he had agreed that he was going to, you know, extract his vengeance um, and make it equivalent to what he had endured. And so since he was imprisoned for eight years of his life, he was going to murder eight victims. And so he killed the five in Gainesville. And then, you know, as it turns out, um, he had, you know, killed the, the three Grissom family members as well. So for these eight victims in total. Yeah. 
not to say that this guy's a good guy in any conceivable way, but shortly before his execution, Rowling sent the Shreveport Reverend uh, Mike Hudspeth. He shipped him, uh, it sent him a letter, or slipped him a letter, pardon me, confessing to the three Grissom murders of 1989. That was very interesting, I thought. Yeah, it's another another one of these kind of cinematic kind of events in this in this story um, that you know the the Grissom murders when they when they happened, of course you know the, the police back then had a had a suspect in mind. They had Julie's you know ex ex boyfriend um, as their top suspect, and kind of like yeah, there's a similar parallel there with Ed Humphrey. How Ed Humphrey was kind of dragged through the media. Yeah. Um, to the public and his his reputation damaged and things. The same thing with Julie's ex ex boyfriend. He was he went through the same thing, you know, for, for those murders. And he actually came to the execution was was outside with the crowd that was gathered there. You know, the pro and the against, and um, you know, was was all this time hoping that Rowling would finally confess to the, the killings. And as you said. You know, he learns afterward that uh, that Rowling had sent a letter, um, and uh, to this this reverend there in Shreveport had given him a letter when he met with him. And then um, after the execution, the, the letter was revealed, and in the letter, Rowling confessed um, to the to killing the, the three Grissoms as well. So, um, really, a lot of really interesting threads with this story. Uh, Absolutely. There's just a lot of lot of uh, subplots kind of going on all at the same time. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, also interesting that you take us you take the reader right into the execution itself, and uh, fascinating when they ask him if he wants to say anything, and he breaks into a song just before the chemicals throw through, flow through his veins. Very, very fascinating. A remarkable book. Uh, JT, thank you very much for coming on and talking about A Monster of All Time, the true story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. It has been fascinating. Thank you, JT. Uh, For those that might want to just check out your other work, you have a Facebook page or website, let us know. Yeah, there's a, the, the publisher is R.J. Parker Publishing, and there's a there's a website rjparkerpublishing.com, and um, you know all the books, all my books are available on Amazon.com. Um, easiest way is just to, to plug in J.T. Hunter, and um, the books should pop up, including the latest one, A Monster of All Time. Yes, thank you very much, J.T. Hope to talk to you again real soon. It's been a pleasure. Good night. Thanks, Dan. It's always fun to talk. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Take care. Take care.